Hey there, and welcome to Beyond Buds with Peoples. Today, we've got Andrew Famon. He's one of the foremost scientists in the cannabis industry and a lab director over at New Venture Epic Labs LA. Andrew served as an expert witness in dozens of court cases involving hash oil manufacturing and cannabis DUIs. Andrew discovered his passion for cannabis during college at UC Berkeley, but it wasn't a stoner until graduation type deal. He's continued with it and went on to get his master's in medical science from Boston University while training under the highly awarded cannabinoid researcher, Dr. Alexandros Macrianis. This month, I sat down with Andrew Pham to talk THC, rapping, and the cannabis misconceptions that he is real tired of hearing industry professionals repeat. So you did your undergrad at UC Berkeley. Not to stereotype Northern California, but is living in the Bay Area the reason you started getting interested in the cannabis space? Oh, man. Uh, I don't want to lump the entire Bay Area into my drug habit, but I will say UC Berkeley has a very rich history in this regard. Um, And it's definitely how I was introduced to the plant. I'm not going to lie about that. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So what initially interested you in this space? Actually, it was just a passing curiosity. Um, I was doing my uh, master's thesis uh, at Boston University, and they kind of let you choose whatever topic you want. And I'm reading a lot of headlines about oh, uh, compounds in cannabis will cure cancer. And uh, honestly, even as a scientist, I thought it was a ridiculous notion. But uh, once I started looking into it, doing some research into the papers that were published and figuring out that there was NIH-funded research in Boston in this uh, kind of scientific field, I figured it might be a great time to delve into this. Absolutely. So I took a whole year compiling the data for my master's thesis in conjunction with a very famous cannabinoid researcher named Alex Macrianis. He was one one of the only people to get an NIH grant for cannabinoid receptor research at the Center for Drug Discovery at Northeastern University. And so it was kind of the first time I ever got into a research setting that was specifically for cannabis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the research mostly involved turning compounds that were kind of based on the interaction of cannabis in your body, using the receptors in your body that cannabis targets as a kind of drug formulation target. So it was really taking the basic chemical structure of THC and modifying it in different ways to see if we can get a better potential effect. Interesting. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Just like looking up the background for all of that is how I got really interested in cannabis as a medicine. How does it feel being one of the foremost experts on the subject, you know, getting so early into this field? Yeah, uh, it's one of those right place at right time things. (laughs) I try not to think of myself or take myself too seriously as an expert. It feels really great to be able to follow my passion. I definitely have a passion for cannabis and a passion for chemistry. And to be able to make a living and have a career in the intersection of both is just a dream come true. Yeah. <laughs> to explore your passion a little bit, what is your favorite cannabis product? Oh, that is a loaded question. As a whole, I'm more of a traditionalist. Uh, I really like flour. I really like rolling my own joints by hand. That's my number one main route of consumption. But the things that are coming out nowadays are just really interesting and fun. 
some of the coolest things I've ever seen, uh, actually before BCC days, uh, we had, when it was just under the medical laws in California, we had a client submit a sample that was a, a medicated pho broth. No so way! Somehow they took THC and put it into this pho soup, which uh, I'm not entirely sure it was completely well dissolved and all that, but the fact that it even existed was just hilarious to me. That's kind of an amazing concept. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I'm not even sure if it would be legal to do nowadays, but uh, it would be a great thing to do down the line if laws evolve and all that. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like a product that I would take every day, um, I'm really into these one-to-one THC CBD gummies. Mm-hmm. As I've gotten a little bit older, I don't know if it's the strains that I'm smoking or just the higher concentrations, but uh, THC just by itself gives me a little bit of anxiety, and that's definitely based in biology. There's an anxiolytic effect there that isn't really there in smaller doses, but kind of in larger doses, it seems to affect people more. Interesting. Can you kind of go into the science of that a little bit? Because that sounds fascinating. Uh, Yeah. So THC, obviously, it's the three classic symptoms when it gets into your body. If it hits the right receptors, it's happy, hungry, sleepy. That's mainly what cannabinoids are for in your body. Your body naturally makes these things called endocannabinoids. And they're mostly involved in maintaining homeostasis, which is just kind of keeping you in balance, keeping you middle and centered, right? But with THC, when you get really high doses, one of the really common side effects is just anxiety. Something in those neurochemical pathways gets crossed and overexcited, and there's definitely this paranoia that you get that is very commonly reported. The thing is, what's incredible about the plant is that it also produces a minuscule amount of CBD, cannabidiol, and cannabidiol kind of counteracts those anxiety-inducing effects of THC. The way it works in your body is that CBD actually competes for the receptors that THC binds to in your brain. So if you take CBD, it'll kind of change the morphology of your receptors such that it makes it harder for THC to bind to. And therefore, it's almost like a an antidote to THC-induced anxiety or even just general highness. So by taking a one-to-one edible, it kind of gives me the effects that I like out of THC, but also keeps me calm through CBD. Wow, I never knew exactly how that works. I've been using those to sleep every night. That's amazing. Yeah, there's, it's it's an incredible process in your entire body. The endocannabinoid system is just uh, an incredible thing. Uh, not a lot of people realize that it even exists. And uh, even in scientific research, it wasn't really discovered until the late 80s. So there's still a lot that needs to be um, kind of figured out. How would you explain the endocannabinoid system to, say, a listener who isn't familiar with the concept, maybe has not heard that term before, just heard you passing once or twice? How would I explain it? I can't explain it in three sentences to make people understand. <laughs> it's it's a whole network, but I think the metaphor that's most commonly used is that think of THC as a key and think of cannabinoid receptors as a lock. Mm-hmm. And in order to get high, you have to put the key in the lock to open the door. So this kind of key and lock metaphor is usually used to explain neurotransmitters. It's a very specific compound that hits a very specific site in your brain. And once it activates that site, the biological effects are activated downstream. So yeah, again, not not a great explanation. It's, It's hard to, it's kind of too complicated to simplify in words. 
I think the best kind of way to explain it is through picture graphs. There's some uh, great illustrations out there. That is for sure. Um, so I noticed you're very good at explaining things that are complicated to lay people, and I'm guessing that has a lot to do with you being an expert witness in so many court cases involving cannabis. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Uh, yeah, uh, I guess uh, speaking to my passion, kind of one of the reasons I really like working in the cannabis industry is that it's really not just about uh, one little segment of society. There's political, there's economic, and there's social um, kind of ramifications, consequences. Uh, let me, I'll try and figure out the right word. But cannabis is just so integrated into our society in so many different ways. And I just got really interested into the social and legal aspects of this, specifically speaking to the social justice part of it. Even after cannabis was legalized in uh, California, there were a lot of people, it's still not technically legal to drive under the influence of cannabis. And there were a lot of court cases when people get pulled over and they find cannabis in their car. The police officer will find weed in their car, maybe some paraphernalia. It might come to the point where they arrest them for driving under the influence. The thing is, one of the pieces of evidence that's very commonly used in these court cases is a blood draw that tells you the amount of THC in your blood. And they try and use that in court as proof that the person was intoxicated while they were driving. The complicated thing about this, though, is that it's really not a one-to-one -one kind of direct line. And there are tons of studies that back this up. From a scientific standpoint, it's actually pretty easy to explain. You'll know... Notice that CHC is actually not water-soluble. It's very oily. It doesn't like to dissolve in water, right? It's the opposite of for alcohol. So alcohol dissolves into your bloodstream quite easily. Because of that, it's really easy to tell if someone's intoxicated from alcohol because it's a direct linear proportion to how much is in your bloodstream. But with THC, because it doesn't like to absorb into your bloodstreams, it likes to absorb into your fatty tissues. So the amount that's in your blood isn't actually directly indicative of how high you are at the time. In kind of a toxicity over time chart, let's say about 20 minutes after you smoke, the THC level in your plasma will hit its peak. Let's say in other studies, it's been shown to be at about as high as two to 300 nanograms per milliliter. But after that 20 minutes, it sharply declines in the first hour, down to the point where it's below 5 nanograms per milliliter. It stays at that 5 nanograms per milliliter kind of range for a very long time, actually up to 24 hours, because it's only slowly leaching out of your fatty tissues. And again, the amount that's in your blood doesn't directly correlate to how much is getting to your brain, which is another fatty tissue. And as you know, the intoxicating effects of marijuana when smoked only last about three to four hours. So you can wake up with a small amount of THC in your bloodstream the next day completely sober. But they can, if they took a blood draw at that time and tried to use it against you in a court of law, they would kind of try and uh, convince a jury that because we found THC in the blood, they were high at this time. And so basically what I was testifying to is that 
yeah, the amount of THC in your blood is not directly indicative of how intoxicated you are. Uh, in fact, I made the point that I probably walked into a courtroom with higher amounts of THC in my blood <laughs> than they were than the uh, people being accused of driving under the influence. So, in your in your opinion, what's the best working indicator of uh, THC intoxication? Um, right now, I think field sobriety tests are probably the best way to do it, just because of the current technology that's out there. Um, but right now, the the federal government, along with the uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology, they're actually trying to help develop a way to try to establish that you smoked within the last couple of hours. And if there's a technology that can conclusively show that repeatedly, then I would think that would be the new kind of standard operating procedure for law enforcement going forward. Right now, as of this time, there's not really a great way to prove that somebody is intoxicated. And that's kind of like not a great thing in terms of society as well, right? You don't actually want people intoxicated uh, driving around. But at the same time, you don't want to put people in jail who are sober. Yeah, definitely not. So it's kind of a tricky thing. <laughs> yeah. Again, it's really more just kind of explaining to juries what these test results actually mean and uh, that the science behind THC consumption does not mirror that of alcohol consumption and therefore shouldn't be treated exactly as such. Do you have any favorite stories from your expert witness testimony? <laughs> there was one time I actually got a jury to laugh by accident. <laughs> what did you do? And uh, the line, I was explaining to people the kind of concept of federally controlled drug trials for cannabis. Uh, there's only one place in Mississippi that has a DEA license to produce cannabis for clinical studies. And that the cannabis that's grown there is actually pretty weak because they had to standardize it for one. But the main point is that it doesn't really resemble what you find in a dispensary at all. For example, the highest THC concentration I could find from their brochure was about 8%. The average at a dispensary, I mean, most dispensaries won't even buy your product unless it's above 20% THC nowadays. And so the comment I said was, yeah, the federal government grows surprisingly bad weed. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was actually a, a PTSD study for cannabis that was commissioned in Arizona. And when they got the stuff from NIDA, they were had found that it was contaminated with microbiological growth. Like there was some mold happening in it, found some seeds. So there's probably some hermaphroditization going on. But honestly, because the material just was of such subpar standard, they just didn't actually use it for the study. Wow. Still, the University of Mississippi uh, and NIDA, they, they deserve all the credit that they get for the actual unbiased research they put out regarding cannabis. And it's really not their fault that they're the only ones that the DEA has allowed to produce this stuff. metric compliant material for your licensed California cannabis company? Peoples is your one-stop solution. We offer reliable and consistent service. Our vertically integrated supply chain provides consistency, cleanliness, and competitive pricing. Over 50 industry-leading cannabis companies rely on Peoples. 
Find out why at peoplescalifornia.com. That's P-E-O-P-L-E-S-C-A-L-I-F-O-R-N-I-A.com. Whether you're a white labeler, a brand, or a manufacturer, Peoples is here to help you grow. you a little bit about CBG. It's not a cannabinoid that's very well understood, but even the average cannabis professional. Uh, Yeah, I wish honestly I could tell you a little bit more than I really know. Honestly, I didn't do my thesis on CBG itself. It was on uh, cannabinoids that were modified from structures that resemble CBG, as well as other cannabinoids. What I can tell you is that CBG is the parent cannabinoid. Uh, they say that because it's actually what the plant produces first, and then depending on the genetics, it's used as the starting material for producing either THCA or CBDA. So it's kind of the common denominator for pretty much all of the cannabinoids here. Um, but as in terms of its effects on the body, it's not super well understood. I, I can't even tell you a lot of them over overlap with CBD, but from what I've read and researched, which honestly isn't a lot of research out there to go off of, it's not like a super powerful cannabinoid for any specific purpose. It has a lot of similar effects to CBD, but it doesn't quite have the same psychoactivity as THC and doesn't seem to be quite as powerful an anti-cancer agent as CBD. There definitely seems to be some really great anti-inflammatory properties to it. Other than that, I couldn't tell you, like, this is a condition that you should use CBG for. CBG is kind of more like the frontier cannabinoid. It's the next CBD that people are trying to get a head start on. But I wouldn't say that the research is ahead of that curve yet. What's the kind of science that you wish more people would pay attention to? That's an interesting question. I really wish that every single, at the very least, that every medical student learned about the endocannabinoid system. I think it has a lot more to do with different diseases than people might be able to have realized. Uh, And because the system is just so new and so, like not that well-researched, medical schools tend to kind of disregard it in general. I mean, honestly, in an ideal world, like everybody would know about the endocannabinoid system because it's in every single person's body. And it's like, there's this entire, like, imagine you didn't understand your own respiratory system. Like that could lead to some really bad things. If you just didn't even know you had a respiratory system, it would be crazy. But most people don't know they have an endocannabinoid system. And so they don't realize that it can be manipulated to increase your daily happiness, honestly. Your uh, quality of life can greatly improve through manipulation of the endocannabinoid system. I just wish that was something people understood. How do you envision the future of the cannabis industry? The future of the cannabis industry, everyone is looking to the point where it is federally legal. And I think that is a pretty decent vision. The future is a fully legal, mostly consolidated industry, which is both good and bad. I mean, the good is people all across the country should stop being arrested for this stuff. That's number one priority for me. 
But on the bad end, complete consolidation, you'll have these giant super mega cannabis corporations that are already kind of happening in Canada with uh, the AFRIA and Tilray merger. Stuff like that, it's just going to cut. The future of cannabis is looking corporate to me so far, and I'm not sure I totally enjoy that. I really hope that social equity programs are well backed up by local and state governments. But really, nothing is more important to me than having a federal framework where cannabis operators can operate in a regulated legal environment. Which state do you think they're most likely to model it after? I've heard some talk about the California model going federal. Uh, That would be a nightmare, to be honest. I live in California. Um, The better framework, honestly, would be the USDA framework for hemp. Obviously, it's a kind of a different way of regulating. The hemp regulations right now really only look over the 0.3% THC limit, and that's pretty much the only thing being enforced. But the framework should be based on an existing framework, and the existing federal framework is probably the best one to go off of. So I would imagine that it's going to be the USDA's. I think they're going to be the front runners for creating the federal rules. What do you think are some of the greatest popular misconceptions about cannabis? Oh, jeez. Popular misconceptions about cannabis. I mean, so many of them are true. <laughs> so the biggest misconception is that it's a gateway drug. And there's so many different studies that prove this is absolutely not the case. If anything, alcohol, if you're going to create, if you're going to create some sort of metric in which to judge something as a gateway drug, alcohol by far is unequivocally the biggest one, not, not cannabis. But another thing that kind of gets lost on people is the fact that you can't overdose on cannabis. Like I know there are nightmare stories about taking an edible that you didn't know how much was in it. You just basically pass out for 18 hours. Like I've been there. But the amazing thing about cannabis, specifically THC, is that there's no active dose that you can physically take that will make any of your vital functions stop. I remember by calculation, we did a quick calculation on what's called the LD50 for THC, which is the lethal dose. It's basically 50% of the lethal dose you need. So by extrapolating the LD50 for THC, multiplying it by kind of the average amount of THC that's in a flower, you would have to smoke something like 20 to 30 pounds within 30 minutes in order to overdose. That would be incredibly impressive. (laughs) Wouldn't you die of smoke inhalation first? Yeah, I don't know. I think you would have to roll yourself and use yourself as a joint to smoke that much marijuana. So I don't know. There's an old dad joke among uh, researchers is, oh, I finally was able to kill these rats with marijuana. Um, It took about 10 pounds and I had to drop it from pretty high. (laughs) (laughs) So what are some cannabis misconceptions that you have heard from professionals that you want to clear up once and for all? Oh, that's a good question. Give me a second here, because there are definitely a lot I would like to clear up. Beyond Buds is supported by Peoples. 
California's leading vertically integrated cannabis company is here to ensure that you can find safe, legal, and affordable cannabis. Whether you're a casual fan of the plant or run your own cannabis business, Peoples has you covered. For business inquiries, you can find Peoples on LinkedIn. against cannabis prohibition isn't over. Join the National Organization for the Reform of Marijuana Laws to help legalize the responsible use of cannabis by adults, remove criminal penalties, and advocate for access to safe and legal cannabis. To learn more and find your local chapter, visit normal.org. That's N-O-R-M-L org. Okay, so one that we've been talking about for a long time now is the when people say that CBD isn't psychoactive. So that's absolutely unequivocally not true. It's not intoxicating. So that's what you really want to say. But to say it's not psychoactive isn't true. It just has a different psychoactive effect than THC. Thank you. I'm glad we cleared that up. It's anxiolytic, and so it really calms you down. Uh, I don't know if you've experimented with CBD a lot, but if you take a very large dose, at least for me, I've found that all the kind of chatter in my brain just goes silent and it's just quiet and so that is because it is modulating or modifying my mental state it is psychoactive it's just not wildly active it's a different type of activity it's a calming type of psychoactive activity yeah, that's one thing I would like people to stop saying, that CBD is not psychoactive. I'll never say that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, another thing from my kind of lab testing industry, there's an old adage that's like, that kind of talks about the inconsistencies between labs, which is true. But what they say is like, you send the same result, same sample to 10 different labs and you get 10 different results. But what kind of gets lost here is that those 10 different results are what are called point estimates. Mm -hmm. So it's a single test. Um, it's a single assay on a single sample with a single result. Lab testing is actually all about statistics. And statistically, you can't really give a good, true answer without multiple data points. So really what you should be doing is aggregating all those 10 data points and doing statistical analyses on those and giving reporting it with what's with a kind of plus minus result a uh, measurement of uncertainty so to speak. So really there's no way that even though this is how it's labeled it doesn't really make sense that you label a product that says this is exactly 21.8% THC. 
because uh, honestly, if you tested it three times, even with the same methodology in one lab, what they should be doing is they should be testing it at least three times, averaging the results and adding a measurement of uncertainty. So if in an ideal world, label would say something like 19 plus or minus 2.1%. Okay. How common is it for labs to... To report that way? Yeah. Despite it being an ISO requirement, Mm -hmm. I don't think any lab is reporting samples like this. And uh, I'm not even really blaming the labs entirely because they're just going by what the regulations are mandating. And the regulations don't want any wiggle room or plus minus in this reporting. They just want a single point answer because it's, it's easier for them to figure out what's a pass versus a fail. But also, like, I think it comes from a lack of understanding of how lab testing works on the side of regulators. Mm. Yeah, I've definitely uh, taken some CBD products that uh, had, quote unquote, zero THC and uh, then realized uh, that was not true. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, wow. Yeah, that's no bueno. That's, uh... Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that could be, honestly. They could either be misidentifying the CHC as another cannabinoid, or honestly, there is a theory that... I don't actually subscribe to this theory, but... It is possible that the acid in your stomach is converting CBD to THC. From a chemical's perspective, CBD and THC, they're only, they're very similar in structure. There's really only a closed ring versus an open ring. And when you expose CBD to acid, the extra proton actually gets that ring to close and it forms THC. It's possible that has something to do with what you experience, but there's a lot of other possible explanations that I think are more likely. That is pretty nuts, though. I've never heard anything about that. Yeah, I kind of wonder. It's only been really shown like in a laboratory setting, right? So it's not like anyone's been able to show this actually happens in your stomach. There's just with simulated gastric juice in a beaker, which is basically just acid. It's definitely a consideration when you're formulating products. I kind of am waiting for the first person to try and produce CBD lemonade and then find out after leaving it on the shelf for two years, it's all turned into THC. So that would be really interesting. So, Andrew, if you weren't a cannabis scientist, what do you think you would be doing? Uh, I'd like to think I would be a rapper, but I don't know if I'd actually make it. Well, you can't just say that and not lay down some bars. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the problem is I am a cannabis scientist, so hopefully that'll excuse me for my fantasy. Okay, I'll let it go this time. (laughs) (laughs) If you had the chance to create any kind of cannabis product that you wanted, what would it be? Yeah, the full broth is pretty up there. Um, it's hard to beat. Yeah. I honestly, I would love to like open like a hash bar, you know, kind of really similar to the ones that are in Amsterdam, but maybe like one where you have rosin presses and they just press it in front of you and serve it with some nachos and just have a great time. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's more of a business than a singular product. That would be great. I would go to that. It sounds like a fun time. <laughs> yeah, that'd be really cool. What would you say to other scientists or, you know, just cannabis fans thinking about the future who are interested in doing the kind of work that you do? 
get out there and network to start. So I was chair of an organization in the American Chemical Society called the Cannabis Chemistry Subdivision. I would encourage anyone who is an aspiring chemist or cannabis scientist who wants to meet other like-minded people to join this group and attend the national expositions. We do a series of seminars on different topics and it's kind of one of the only places where people share information like freely outside of like a competitive economic environment, right? This is more of a collaborative scientific environment. So people are really cool with sharing information and it's also a great way to meet the top minds in the field. Quite frankly, it's just a really fun group of people in general. That's great. It was hard when I first got into this industry because I felt like it, there weren't, wasn't a lot of people I could talk to about what I do because what I did was so new. This was that kind of great bridge, and I met some of my closest friends through this group. So I would highly encourage people who want to get into the industry to get out and meet the people that are in the industry and just start talking to people. So you've recently moved from Alchemist Labs to Epic Labs. What are you excited to accomplish in your new role? I love building things, you know, from the ground up. That's kind of what this project is about. I still don't think there's any lab doing it the way that I would like to do it, where everything is just so carefully and precisely done and all the measurements in every aspect of the lab are just done with confidence, right? There's a lack of trust in the industry, and I just would really like to establish a cannabis lab that has an excellent reputation and people trust. So that's, that's mostly what I'm looking forward to. Is there anything that you wanted someone to ask you that they haven't yet? I guess I would want somebody to ask me about what my parents think about what I do. So I think that's a hilarious story. <laughs> what do your parents think about what you do? Uh, man, uh, when I first got into this industry, when my dad found out what I did, he was absolutely crushed. Because, you know, I was, the original plan was to go to medical school, but that didn't look like it was working out. And then I found this and I got really excited about it. But to him, he just thought I had become a drug addict. And there was like, a really terrible night where he was just sitting there depressed and he told me like you know this is just the beginning like one day it's not going to be enough for you and you're going to be doing heroin in the alley and there's nothing I can do about it wow yeah like super yeah and you know my dad is a Vietnamese immigrant he came over during the Vietnam War and so in his mind like I came here with nothing I started from nothing I built this all up for my family and now my youngest son is a drug addict and that's what was happening in his brain you know and now he's like hey i'm having trouble sleeping can you give me more of that thc chocolate (laughs) it was a lengthy battle but i just kind of had to explain to him like i'm not doing this because of drugs i'm doing this because i really think this can help people eventually he started to listen and try it out and came at it with an open mind you and him over. realized that cannabis isn't as scary as he thought it was. And I just hope that's something that everybody realizes. For the listeners going through the same thing, how long did it take you? <laughs> oh, man. Um, I mean, I wouldn't say it's even at 100% acceptance now, but I would say it took me like three to five years to get him to the point where I could smoke in front of him and he wouldn't say anything, which is about as best as it gets with Asian parents. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty close to 100, I feel like. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty up there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Thank you so much to Andrew Pham and you, of course, for going beyond buzz with peoples today. Join us next month for a special mystery guest and make sure to check back and listen to last month's episode with Eric Gopel, the CEO and co-founder of the Veterans Cannabis Coalition. To learn more about the things Andrew talked about in this month's episode, take a look at our show notes below. If you enjoyed it, make sure to subscribe to the podcast and rate five stars on your favorite podcasting platform. We'll see you next time.